Welcome to Running Mead Radio. This is Joanna Barron. Uh, today's discussion centers on the case concerning the Evangelical Christian University, Trinity Westerns, and its proposed law school, which is uh, expected to be the apex of the Supreme Court of Canada's fall docket. Uh, its hearing is currently scheduled for November 30th. And I discussed the case with Brian Bird who is a PhD candidate at McGill Faculty of Law, um, where his thesis is tentatively titled The Still Small Voice, Freedom of Conscience in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Brian was also a law clerk to Justice Carrick Katsanas at the Supreme Court of Canada, and he wrote an excellent piece on religious freedom and trinity in policy options, which I will link to. We discussed the case, which, since our conversation, has been granted leave to be heard by the Supreme Court, of course, um, we also discussed the repercussions for Trinity Western's other programs if it is functionally unable to operate its law school. We discussed the broader context of religious accommodation and convergence in a liberal pluralistic society, um, as well as the clash of titans between the British Columbia and Ontario appellate courts, which the Supreme Court will be bound to parse out. Please enjoy my discussion with Brian Bird. I'm here with my friend Brian Bird, who is a PhD student at McGill University's Faculty of Law. And Brian, let me just say first of all that um, I'm grateful that you exist. Um, I think that the work you're doing on freedom of conscience is so important, particularly now, particularly with recent developments in constitutional jurisprudence. Um, and we couldn't ask for anybody better or more sensitive or thoughtful to be working on these issues. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. That's very kind, and I'm uh, very happy to be here. And I just want to say I'm very grateful for all the work that Running Meet is doing. Glad to see how active uh, and alive and well it is across the country. Great. Um, so we are here primarily to talk about religious freedom and constitutional law in Canada. Brian um, recently wrote a provocative and very thoughtful piece about Trinity Western University's proposed law school in policy options, and I'll post a link to that piece. Um, in the show notes, um, but in the piece, Brian, you talk about the recent BC Court of Appeal decision, but before we get into that and before we get into some of the arguments you make, let's take a few minutes to just sort of set the stage for the Trinity Western saga and litigation, and we will get into the sort of broader saga with the 2001 Teachers College case, um, but in terms of the proposed law school. So wh how can we describe this to our listeners quickly? S certainly. So Trinity Western, it's a private uh, evangelical Christian university in uh, British Columbia in the metropolitan area of Vancouver, and it's been around for quite a while. started in the, the 60s or 70s, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, and it proposed a law school. It asked uh, the requisite authorities and, uh, and the Federation of Law Societies of Canada to, for approval to start a law school. And the controversy that arose in relation to this proposal is basically it revolves around Trinity Western's code of conduct, student code of conduct that all students must sign um, before starting studies at Trinity. And that code of conduct, perhaps not surprisingly, reflects Trinity's uh, Christian worldview. And the dispute really boils down to one, one clause in that conduct which forbids uh, Trinity students from uh, engaging in sexual intimacy outside of marriage, marriage understood as uh, between a man and a woman, so excluding uh, same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and so that has been the, the spark that, that has lit the flame, so to speak, in terms of the litigation that's arisen. The, the law school was actually approved by the Federation of Law Societies, which is the, 
the governing kind of kind of national coordinating body for all of the provincial and territorial law societies across Canada. So it was approved by the FLSC, Federation of Law Societies of Canada. And uh, what then happened uh, is that three of Canada's law societies, three provincial law societies, one in British Columbia, Ontario, and Nova Scotia, uh, refused to accredit graduates of Trinity's proposed law school. So basically these law societies, these three law societies, said that uh, someone who comes to us with a Trinity Western law degree will not be able to get a, a license to practice law in this province. And again, it revolves around uh, the um, that clause in the, the Code of Conduct, which is called the Community Covenant. That's what Trinity Trinity calls it. And so that's uh, it basically is a clash between religious freedom on Trinity's side and equality on the basis of sexual orientation. So the LGBTQ community uh, says, listen, we can't attend this law school if we wanted to because of that clause. And so we uh, think that you either have to give up that clause, Trinity, or you can't have your law school. Yeah. Um, and as we were speaking about right before we started recording, it's been sort of taken for granted um, in the legal community that it will ultimately end up at the Supreme Court of Canada. We're not sure if the leave application was heard, um, but it seems that it would be an absurdity or, you know, a rather novel twist in the story if the Supreme Court of Canada were to not grant leave. And the reason is, of course, that um, that the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, BC Court of Appeal and Ontario Court of Appeal had three very different and particularly contrasting BC and Ontario, which are powerhouse courts of appeal in Canada, um, you know, very contrasting outcomes. Um, so briefly, we can say that the Ontario Court of Appeal upheld the Law Society of Upper Canada's decision to refuse accreditation. Um, and the BC decision was different. It's a very interesting decision. Being a British Columbia native, do you have any thoughts on it? You know, it was very, uh, there was a lot of anticipation with respect to the BC decision because it uh, completed the provincial rulings. We already had the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal and then the Ontario Court of Appeal and then British Columbia's uh, in November. That was most, that finished it off in terms of setting the stage for the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm -hmm. And so the BC Court of Appeal uh, had the, the benefit or uh, had the availability of the Ontario and Nova Scotia decisions to kind of compare and indeed the BC Court of Appeal as part of its reasoning uh, made comparisons and contrasts and disagreements with how for example Ontario dealt with, uh, mm -hmm. with their case so it was a very strong it was interesting about the you mentioned very contrasting the Ontario decision is very very strong in its language and the BC decision is very strong in its language but both diametrically well opposed. yes if I were to pull two highlights from them respectfully respectively I would say the Ontario Court of Appeal decision um, has the much quoted line the community covenant is discriminatory and it hurts That's right. um, and the BC Court of Appeal decision had a line something to the effect of um, the reasonable outcome of this balancing of liberty and equality rights, only a reasonable person would always come down on the favor of liberty, sure. or something to that effect. Yeah, I think that, uh, the, and another one in the BC case, it may even be the final paragraph, something to the effect of you know, what we have in BC Court of Appeal, a five nothing uh, decision, uh, five judge panel, said that you know, what we have in this case is a, to use their words, and I hope I'm not uh, going too far from the quote, uh, and, and in, intolerant and illiberal majority trying to impose its view on uh, a minority uh, under the guise of liberalism and tolerance. So very, very pointed language, yeah. and we'll see how, uh, how that's handled by the Supreme Court of Canada. It's anyone's guess how that will turn out if anyone in the court hears it, and as you said, it would be quite the twist if the court said no, but so it's, <laughs> it's more than likely that they will say yes. It could very well be, maybe we will see, I mean, Specula speculation to a certain extent, but maybe we will see in some ways a reflection of the Ontario and BC decisions in a potential split in the Supreme Court of Canada. You know, 
the question is which side garners the most votes. But you never know. People will be unanimous one way or the other. We'll see. Yeah, you never know. They may decide to try and you know send a symbolic message of, of, of unity as they sometimes do sure. and release the decision by the court. But somehow I don't, my prediction, my you know rampant, rampantly speculative prediction would be some type of 5-4 or 6-3 split if I had to guess right now. It, it could very well be. I mean, I think... I mean, I think when you have BC and Ontario, you know, two of head to head, it really indicates that there's a very interesting tension that very smart and very, um, very learned jurists are disagreeing about. And what do you think is up with that? Like, what's what's really going on here? This this seems like a you know a sort of rare, um, deep clash of first principles. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know with these collision of rights cases, which this is an example of, where you have. Religious freedom and equality, arguably, I mean, other than Section Seven, right, life, liberty, and security of the person, perhaps the two kind of charter rights and freedoms that have had the most attention and jurisprudence attached to them, uh, and they have clashed before, perhaps most famously in the Trinity Western Version One. In, in the first case, that came out in two thousand one uh, with respect to the school teacher program. So I think when you have any collision of rights case, you're going to have uh, you know you have two charter rights or charter freedoms or a mixture of the two. And so there are very fundamental interests that go into any of these. And so when they come into to collision, uh, it's always going to be uh, tense. And I think with these two rights in particular, uh, you have um, they, they're probably two of the big ones. Uh, so I think we just have a, kind of a clash of, of, of titans in a certain respect uh, in, the, in charter discourse. Yeah, so you indicate in your policy option piece that in your own assessment as a jurist, you come out on the side of religious liberty. Could you speak about why that is? Sure. I mean, maybe one thing I'll say before is the initial inspiration for the piece and kind of the way the piece starts is I wanted to think about, or I started to think about, you know, this case is obviously immediately about the law school, the proposed law school that Trinity wants. But what happens to Trinity Western? This is the question I asked myself. What happens to Trinity Western more widely as an institution if it loses? Uh, if it loses its law school, is that, I don't think that's the end of the story for Trinity. It would seem to me that for all the attention that the 2001 decision has got, there could be a interesting kind of boomerang effect if Trinity loses the law school. It would seem that its other programs that have a public regulator, um, you have the law societies in the case of, uh, of, of the legal profession, but you have other public regulators in the case of nursing programs or school teacher programs, and Trinity has those programs. They also are you know, statutorily mandated to uh, act in the public interest. What happens to them? Uh, it would seem hard to find a way out of saying that the, the Trinity Law School defeat would not also affect affect those programs. And then I may also make the point of the piece that when you could even draw the line further, potentially, and say, listen, if this is ultimately about access to um, a public good, a university education, why does it matter if it's a, a law degree or a nursing degree or education degree, history degree, biology degree, business degree? So I think there's some, some it's natural that the focus would be on the law school, but there's some, some down the line uh, ramifications for Trinity um, if it refuses to give up this clause in its covenant and assuming that it loses the law school. So we'll see what happens there. But in terms of the question you asked about why is it problematic for religious liberty, I think at the end of the day, um, I think that you know, this case is about balancing. We've heard that word over and over again, balancing these two rights. I just think at the end of the day that uh, you know, this is a private, self-funded, faith-based university that ultimately wants to kind of govern who comes in and out in a way that is consonant with its religious beliefs, with religious freedom, and that just seems to me to be a very 
integral part of kind of the collective notion of religious freedom, the ability to say who comes in and who comes out on the basis of, of, of your religious beliefs uh, in a way that, that is kind of tied to religious beliefs. And so if Trinity loses this case, uh, that kind of very integral part of religious freedom will, I think, suffer, a, suffer a great damage. And therefore, religious freedom as a, as a right, as a, as a fundamental freedom in the Charter, also will perhaps be diluted. Right. Well, because also to, to remind our readers, the Charter, of course, does not apply to private institutions. It does apply to law societies in different ways, as well as the Human Rights Code, um, which brings us to our next question. Um, Trinity is a private institution. However, they are asking for a type of public benefit. And, you know, this is the source of their current woes with the provincial law societies. Um, so isn't it, don't the law societies have some jurisdiction to decide who to accredit based on the public interest or however it's formulated in their enabling statutes, which is, of course, uh, what happened in Ontario and BC. They said, look, we, we have to decide who to accredit based on this public interest, and we're taking it into account that this is a discriminatory community covenant and we don't accept it. Yeah, I think that's, that's really where the rubber hits the road in this case is, yeah. you know, that you know, Trinity is trying to offer a, a public good, a public benefit in the form of a, of a law degree. Of course, they've been offering other degrees up until now, and they're trying to add a, another one. Um, so you're right, I mean, the, the law societies are certainly, uh, the courts have found that they're entitled to, uh, to, to kind of ask and answer this question, um, and that this is part of their public interest mandate. But I think the first thing I would say to that is, I, I think most people would, would agree that the kind of the fundamental kind of role of the law society is to make sure that the uh, lawyers that are going to be serving the public and delivering legal services to the public are doing so adequately, that they're, that they're adequately prepared to, to, um, to hold the licenses that they seek from the law society. And so what's interesting about this case, there's no, at least in the litigation and in the, in the court decisions, that the argument that Trinity, Trinity's law program will offer some sort of substandard legal education, that their graduates will be somehow deficient compared to the other law schools in Canada, that hasn't gained traction and I don't think it'll, it will. Um, indeed, the, the Federation of Law Societies of Canada applied what's called the national requirement. They, they, the law societies came together with the FLSC years ago and they said, listen, this content is what needs to be in a law degree for it to be approved and Trinity Western met that content. So I think that the public interest mandate of the, of the law societies should be and is, I think most people would say, primarily about what kind of lawyers are we giving licenses to? And no one, you remember in the 2001 decision with Trinity Western just shifting to another public regulator, the BC College of Teachers, that case was all about the output of, of Trinity Western University. In that case, the BC College of Teachers said, listen, we don't think, that, we think that your teachers, uh, that you're graduating, that, we're gonna, that you want us to license, will be discriminatory in the classroom to LGBTQ students. Yes, and that, that's not an allegation that's even no. made out here that, by that, the law societies, it's, it's, perhaps because it, it was unsuccessful yeah, they, they <laughs> previously. Realized, they realized and the court said, listen, unless BC College of Teachers, unless you have some sort of evidence to substantiate that concern, that's not a reason to refuse accreditation. I mean, the, and so, but in this case, you're right. This is that has totally fallen off the map. Instead of the output of Trinity Western, we're talking now about the input. Who can go into Trinity yeah. Western? And who can't? So yes, I mean, I think, and, and even just to go back to your original question of, you know, does the law society, do the law societies of Canada and Canada across the country have the right to um, to consider this issue? Yes, absolutely. But I think at the end of the day, there's a balancing that they have to realize, and they, they have, and they've obviously taken this into consideration, and they've come to differing conclusions. Uh, the courts have come to different conclusions as to what that balance is between religious freedom, which is the reason for the, the covenant, 
um, and what animates the covenant, uh, which is in many ways, I think, I think I mentioned this in the policy options piece, it's in many ways a kind of statement of faith. It's a, I mean, Trinity Western, I think, at the end of the day, you know, it's one of the few faith-based universities in Canada, and so I think we're, we're it's kind of an, an anomaly in some ways. We're so used to non-faith-based universities, so I wonder how much we have to maybe get you get used to, you know, so this, you know, Trinity Western is really a community of faith. It's a religious community, you know, first and foremost, before being a university. And so uh, ultimately it comes down to this balancing of how do we balance equality and religious freedom. And it, frankly, it is not an easy task. There's so many things going on, so many nuances to this case. But uh, I think at the end of the day, when we're dealing with you know, a self-funded private university, which has a voluntary um, code of conduct that people who decide to go there choose or choose to um, adopt or they don't go to Trinity Western if they can't adopt it for whatever reason. Um, that, that ultimately, I think if we, if we lose that right or Trinity loses that right um, as a part of its religious freedom, it's going to be a body blow to religious freedom. Yeah, I agree. And I also think where you have sort of intractable strong rights like equality and religious freedom, um, it's helpful to look at sort of objective factors. And the one thing that really struck me when I was reading the Ontario Court of Appeal decision, which came out in June of last year, um, was that you could read the decision and get the, get the sense that the parties being harmed by the charter infringing conduct were um, were gay law students being blocked from Trinity Western when in fact the only students demonstrably suffering harm were those being blocked from by far the biggest legal market in Canada ie Ontario um, and if you read McPherson's reasons I think it's it's very problematic how the charter infringing conduct itself doesn't seem to um, weigh in the balance of the reasons um, so that that's something that struck me and struck me as sort of a a worrying sign for the state of religious freedom in Canada. Um, yeah, I think to that, just a further point in terms of McPherson's reasons, I think one of the things that struck me as well, and the BC court kind of pounced on this in its reasons, was the suggestion that, listen, you know, because of the decision that we're upholding, the Law Society of Upper Canada's refusal to accredit Trinity Western, you know, Trinity Western will experience some, may experience, I think the word was, may experience some difficulty in, in operating a law school, uh, but it still can operate a law school and offer a law degree. Well, the BC court said, listen, it's, that, that's kind of a, that, 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 that's, uh, what's the word? When you think about what the purpose of a law school is, arguably, this is a, this, this is a whole other question, but uh, fundamentally, I think most people would agree it's to prepare people to enter the legal profession. And so, sure, Trinity could potentially continue to offer a law degree, but if it's uh, kind of a law degree that won't go anywhere in terms of being able to enter the legal profession, the biggest market in Canada, how much of a, how useful is that law degree going to be? Uh, there obviously are other careers other than entering the legal profession proper, but you know the majority of people who go into law school at least have in their mind pretty clearly that they want to give it a shot. Um, and indeed, what's interesting in Trinity Western's case, after the Law Society of British Columbia uh, decided not to accredit Trinity's law school, the uh, Minister of Advanced Education in British Columbia withdrew his degree authorization. There were two authorizations that Trinity Western needed to obtain. It needed to obtain from the province of British Columbia the right to offer a degree, just like it would need to seek that uh, authorization if it wanted to offer a history degree. And then it also needed the Federation of Law Societies to say, listen, this accords with the national requirement for what we say a law degree should contain. And so right now, as things stand, Trinity Western has uh, actually has, has lost both the uh, credit or never gained the accreditation in these three provinces, but it also has lost uh, the authorization even to offer a law degree. Right now, it can't even offer a law degree that is um, author that, that, that it can that, that can be conferred. Mm -hmm. So uh, that statement in, in McPherson's reasons kind of uh, I think the BC Court was right to say, listen, okay, 
there's more to than just, you know, yes, they can still offer a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody really could take that particularly seriously. It's not particularly pers persuasive to me. But um, it, it is, without doubt, a very, a very complicated case. I mean, I think one of the, the things that's very interesting is the, this notion of equality of access to law school. Um, and that, that's a big Yeah, issue. so I was going to ask you about yeah. that next. Sorry, the the yeah. question, the, the sort of gay quota yeah. argument, which is, look, if you have, you know, another law school that is a priori closed off to gay people, um, or at very least gay people who are not willing to adhere to the covenant, sure. which is understandable by, sure. by my view. Sure. Um, so what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that both the... BC courts and the Nova Scotia courts, I can't recall if this was in the Ontario decision, it may very well have been, they kind of took a look at this issue uh, and said, listen, you know, just looking at the numbers, uh, there are 2,500 uh, common law spots in, in, in Canada, uh, as, as is right now, before taking into consideration Trinity Western. Trinity Western would add 60 you know, first year spots uh, to 2,500. So just taking a look at the numbers, okay, that's you know, gotta have that in mind, that's important. The other thing that the BC court, I think, in particular looked at was the fact that the Federation of Law Societies, in its review of Trinity Western's Law School, in determining whether it should even approve it, it struck a kind of a, a special report on whether there were any public interest reasons to refuse Trinity Western's Law School. And it looked at this issue and it said, listen, there's a couple other things in addition to this notion that it would be 60 new seats among 2,500 existing, which is a pretty small percentage. The other issue is that, you know, it, by approving Trinity, Trinity's Law School, LGBTQ students who want to go to law school would not have any fewer choices than they have already. It's not as if an existing law school in Canada, so McGill, Queen's, UBC, Toronto, is adding this term into their code of conduct. The other thing is, is that you have to take into consideration that there may very well be people, and the FLSC mentions this in their report, there may be people who share, and I'm certain there are, who share Trinity's worldview and would be attracted to the idea of going to Trinity's Law School to the exclusion of you know, not going to any other law school. So it's going to attract certain people, uh, people who share Trinity's worldview, the target audience, so to speak, of Trinity Western University. Um, and so the, all these factors basically led the FLSE to say, listen, if there is any kind of uh, change in terms of the quality of access, it certainly doesn't rise to the level of uh, kind of tipping the scales one way or the other. So I think at the end of the day, I think the, the access issue, uh, it's, it's, it's there, but I don't think it's, it's as... Um, much of a material issue as it's been kind of made out to be. And I think the other thing to remember, and this has not got a lot of focus, but if you read the, the sexual intimacy clause, which is the, the clause in, that's at issue here, that's being uh, litigated over, it also affects heterosexual unmarried mm -hmm. persons as well, because the clause says, you know, sexual intimacy within the confines of marriage, understood as between a man and a woman, obviously a Trinity's view, a man and a woman can go and get married, and then sexual intimacy is, is licit in their mm -hmm. view. But um, it's not, I think there, there is this kind of a sense that you get that it's, there's, a, there's an anti-gay thrust to, to, um, to, this, uh, to this clause, but it does have an effect on, on, uh, on heterosexual people as well. The point being is that I don't think it is meant to be, I don't know if this is not being alleged, I don't think that it's, that it's, a, that it's target, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, the, the same clause was or the essentially the same clause was the subject of the 2001 litigation. So it's not new. It's been around for a Right. While. So which brings us to the next question. You know, a, a sort of an intelligent layman could say, look, you had a case in 2001 um, with a degree-granting institution subject to a public regulator um, with the community covenant in issue. The Supreme Court of Canada, I believe the reasons were written by Yakabuchi and Bastarash, gave their decision. Why are we back here? 
That was a very good question. I remember that was the initial, uh, a lot in the press and the media, there was a lot of, uh, of stories to that effect. Listen, haven't we been here before? Isn't this deja vu? And in a certain respect, it is. It's the very same institution. It's uh, the same clause. It's this, in many ways the same issue. The big difference is that, as we alluded to before, in the 2001 case, the concern was the output. Trinity's mm-hmm. output, its graduates, how would they behave in the public square? Would they be discriminatory? Exactly. Yeah. Now the question is, and that no one is alleging, you know, it's interesting, there are many lawyers in, in, in Canada who went to Trinity Western for their undergraduate degree and then went to a, an existing law, secular law school in Canada, uh, who obviously, sh- most of them, I would think, share that view. So there are people in the legal profession who clearly share the worldview that Trinity does, that Christian worldview, and no, uh, so no one is alleging that Trinity's grads are going to be uh, discriminatory. What we have in this case is just an, uh, looking at the other side of the issue, which is the input. And the court in the 2001 decision, if my memory serves me correctly, kind of flagged that issue and said, listen, on our existing uh, equality jurisprudence under Section 15, uh, a voluntary code of conduct at a you know, private, self-funded university um, wouldn't give rise to any mm-hmm. uh, equality claims, or that would be that would be uh, damaging to Trinity. So basically we have, in some ways, kind of like a retesting or a pushing of that issue a bit more. The court alluded to it in 2001, didn't decide it because the BC College of Teachers, or there was no party in that decision who was saying, listen, I want to go to Trinity's school teacher program, but I feel I can't because I'm LGBTQ and there's, just, there's this clause in the covenant. So basically where we have the, it's kind of like the other side of the coin in some ways, mm-hmm. that is what we're dealing with now. But, but in fairness, I don't think that Trinity or many people expected that they would ever be litigating in, in this way ever again after the 2001 decision. Uh, so in fairness to people who, and myself as well, when, I, when it first came out, before I kind of had a full grasp of what was going on, I thought, this, this is peculiar because yeah. we seem to have been here before. Yeah, well, and it also seems like, you know, some of, certainly there are sentiments expressed in the 2001 Trinity decision that I don't think are being emphasized by the lower appellate courts, um, which, you know, is perhaps a function of our current legal culture where major constitutional issues do change every few years and the outcomes do change. And there is um, that culture um, of not deferring to precedent as much. Um, but to look at it from a sort of broader lens um, in terms of the sort of the really you know, fundamental issues that we're seeing being fought out as sort of manifestations of deeper tensions here, um, there are notions in theories of the liberal state of um, the difference between a convergent space model of accommodating religious diversity and a pluralistic model of accommodating religious diversity, one of which is, look, Um, In a multicultural secular state, facially secular state, there is going to be a a tendency of diverse cultural groups to sort of calibrate to the center um, and smooth out their differences under liberal norms. And that's a good thing. Whereas the more pluralistic view is no, in a multicultural state, um, we do have obviously sort of basic norms of conduct with which we interact with each other. Um, but it's quite okay if everybody keeps their sort of traditional norms and traditional differences. And um, there's a there's a historian at Princeton, Jeffrey Stout, that's written a lot about this. Um, and it, it seems to me that the convergence theory is asking a lot. It's, it's asking a lot of individuals. <laughs> I agree. I think in this case, really comes down to in many ways how it tests. I think I, I think I mentioned this in the, the policy options piece. Like it tests our our Canadian society, our commitment to accommodating difference, even difference with which, what the majority, overwhelming and increasing majority of Canadians 
passionately disagree with. And you know, when it comes to issues of marriage and um, you know, one of the big things that changed since two thousand one to now is obviously a, a same sex marriage was legalized in Canada, and, and so attitudes have changed. And uh, you know, more and more Canadians, I would imagine, the majority of Canadians are are totally fine with totally fine with, uh, with the idea of same same sex. Yeah, marriage. and some on the one hand, you could make the argument because same sex marriage is now legal, you know, that should effectuate a change in right. religious institutions norms. The other argument is no, it's even more important to preserve these sort of diverse, you know, passions or faithful religious communities. And I think you raised a really good point earlier that we don't have many religious educational institutions in Canada. It's totally different in the United States where they would think it was crazy that we were, you know, that we were so flummoxed about this issue, but we we are, you know, a society of public secular universities by and large. Absolutely. Trinity is very much kind of a a lone voice in the wilderness in that that respect. It's not, I mean, obviously if, if any of the secular law schools or universities were to add a code of covenant, a community covenant, a code of conduct like the community covenant to their existing codes of conduct, there'd be understandable outrage. Yeah, well, yes, in the Supreme Court, I'm sure you're uh, familiar with, with the Saguenay um, Mouvement Laïque de Quebec decision, which just came out in 2015, which had very strong words that it was completely inappropriate for a Quebec town city council to host a prayer at the outset of the meeting. Um, and they made it clear that the, the state has to neither encourage nor discourage any form of religious belief. Um, so this is sort of, I guess, the other side of the coin. But it seems to me that the argument should apply equally both ways. Agreed, yeah. It has to, it's kind of a two-way street. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it really, this case does come down to, in many ways, how uh, it tests our commitment, I think, to accommodate the difference. How far are we willing to go, even if, and this is one of the things that came up, I think you're talking about maybe things that are underneath the surface, and we see this perhaps as an issue beyond the Trinity case, but also just in wider society in different contexts, in Canada at least. This, this notion of offense and being offended by something, be it Trinity's viewpoint on uh, marriage or sexual intimacy or whatever it may be, um, the BC Court of Appeal accused the Ontario Court of Appeal of factoring in the offensiveness of uh, Trinity's community covenant, and that's mm-hmm. that sexual intimacy clause, to the LGBTQ community as kind of being um, a part of the balance between religious freedom and equality. Um, and basically, the BC courts said, "Listen, we have not recognized in Canada uh, a right to not be offended." Right, and, and, and there, there are good reasons for that, in the sense that you know there are many things that we, you know, I'm sure, we are as individual citizens offended on numerous occasions every day in terms of things we see in our just our daily lives. But as I think the Supreme Court of Canada said in the 2001 decision on Trinity Western, and it's said this elsewhere, repeated it that listen, tolerance of divergent viewpoints, even if they make you uncomfortable, even if they offend you, up until the point that they actually cause harm. Um, but that's the hallmark of a pluralistic society. You mentioned pluralism just a few minutes ago. So that's, I think, in many ways, the what's being pushed here is how willing are we to tolerate thing, something, you know, a view on sexual intimacy and marriage, uh, especially when a public good, like a law degree is involved, how willing are we to accommodate that, tolerate that, even when perhaps the overwhelming majority of people passionately oppose that viewpoint. I think that's so in many ways, this, this, I don't think it's uh, outlandish to say that this is a very important case for, for Canada, uh, for the bar society, for the kind of, perhaps, the kind of society that, the kind of quote-unquote free and democratic society that, we're, that we are, you know, using the words from Section 1 of the Charter, um, that's what's being tested, I think, the shape of that free and democratic society. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the chat. It's been really interesting, and keep up the good work. Pleasure, Joanna. Thank you.
That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Brian Bird. Um, please follow Running Mead Society on Twitter at Running Mead SOC. Visit our website at runningmeadsociety.ca. Um, you can also support the podcast and the Running Mead Society more tangibly there, including by way of our Amazon affiliate link, which you can reach at runningmeadsociety.ca slash Amazon. So thanks so much and see you next time.